As an inventor, Andrew Wilson holds the patent on 14 different products. Now he's licensing something else that is uniquely his. In September 2004, a county judge granted Wilson's request to change his name to They. Immediately, They was on a first-name basis with the entire English-speaking world. One reason the single man from Branson, Missouri, uh, made the switch was to have a little fun. I was just having a good time, They said. Life is short, and you should try to find a way to make yourself smile. Uh, Cindy Gosa, uh, They's insurance agent, offered another reason. They likes to stand out from a crowd, she said. They has achieved both for now. The name is still a novelty, and they's, <laughs> and they's friends are having fun with it, phoning him to ask, is they there? <laughs> they admits that the name change could drive grammarians crazy. He also sees the change as an opportunity to take credit for countless actions, both good and bad. People refer to every day, they do this, or they're to blame for that. Who is this? They, everybody talks about. They accomplished such great things. Somebody had to take responsibility, they said. (laughs) Oh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus identifies a key they group in Pergamos. They are the ones who are submitting to false teachers. Revelation chapter 2. Let me give you the uh, background uh, on this particular church. Uh, It was uh, known uh, as a great library. It was, uh, by the way, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. That's significant. It housed 200,000 rolls of parchment, which would be fancy uh, writing material made of animal skins. Uh, It was also originally the capital city of Asia. Uh, It was moreover a religious city. Uh, There was an altar to Zeus. It was 40 feet high on a ledge of a rock which looked like a throne. It was the center for Asclepius worship. He was the god of healing. Uh, R.H. Charles called it the Lord's of the ancient world. Asclepius was pictured as a serpent and given the title Asclepius Soter, Asclepius the Savior. Uh, Pergamus uh, was also the center for Caesar worship in Asia. No wonder the city is described as having the throne of Satan. Uh, Now, let me read you the text, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Anipus was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel 
to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual morality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Join me in prayer, please. Father, I just thank you uh, for Jesus' assessment of these seven churches. We learn so much and even better understand uh, the church of Jesus Christ today. So, Father, once again, by the Spirit of God, may he instruct all those who will hear this message. May we all revere the eternal word, and we thank you for the accurate assessment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our study, your servant asks in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 12, Jesus specifically addresses the church in Pergamos. This would be modern day Bergama. And you know these words, do they sound familiar to you? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I'm sure it does sound familiar to you, and we'll get to the reason why in just a moment. The uh, structure of the Greek sentence is interesting. Let me just give you the literal translation. It's the sharp, the two-edged, the sword. There is here what we refer to, grammarians would say, as the article of previous reference. The word the points back to something before and we find that in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 16. So would you turn there and let's look at these now familiar words. 116. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. What we're seeing in Revelation 2.12 is a reference back to the vision given to John. Remember, I have pointed out that to the first six churches, you have a message that points back, at least in part, to the vision which John received of the resurrected and glorified Christ. Only the church of Laodicea doesn't have that same distinction. So now we have the sword the sword. Uh, that term appears seven times in the Greek New Testament. Six of those found in the book of Revelation. The only one outside of the book of Revelation is Luke chapter 2 and verse 35. The description of the sword is a large and broad sword. Uh, it was used by barbaric peoples, particularly the Thracians, which would have been from Turkey. Uh, clearly, when you have the introduction of a letter and it describes Christ as having that sharp sword in his mouth, the context speaks that of judgment. Here's point number one for you. Embrace Christ and his word till death. Embrace or take to yourself Christ 
and his word till death. The one who has eyes like a flame of fire, which speaks of discernment. It refers to a penetrating gaze. He's the one who says, I know your works. To each church, these words are given. Why? Because Jesus, the one who was standing in the midst of the churches, is now walking in the midst of each one, evaluating them. And he points out here to this particular church and where you dwell. Uh, The word dwell here means a settled residence. Uh, Later, it becomes a technical term for the earth dwellers during the tribulation period. So Jesus knows your works, where they live, where they have a settled residence, and where Satan's throne is. Uh, It was fascinating just doing a scan of commentaries to see how they interpreted where Satan's throne is. Uh, Charles Ryrie says it refers to either emperor worship or Greek gods in a temple or perhaps even Zeus worship. Walverd writes reference to satanic power in the evil religious character of the city of Pergamus manifested in the persecution of Christians and perhaps epitomized in the worship of Asclepius, the serpent god. Thomas writes, it's referring to emperor worship. The one thing I want you to gather from all these scholars' assessments is that there is wickedness in this region. Satan has a strong foothold in this territory. Jesus continues, and you hold fast to my name. Hold fast is not echo, just to have. This is This is the idea here of a strong holding on to. Uh, We saw that term back in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, where the man who was given the ability to walk, who had been crippled forever from the time he was in his mother's womb, if you will, all of a sudden is given the ability to stand up and walk and he grasps, he holds on to Peter and John. Same term. Uh, We saw this back in chapter 2 in verse 1 and we'll see it once again in chapter 2, 14 and then 15. Jesus continues, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Anipus was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's an interesting name, Anipus. It only means against all. Tradition says that he was burned to death in a bronze bull during the reign of Domitian. He was from that territory and his martyrdom displays the wickedness and that the nature of Satan is manifest right there. In John 8, 44, we know that Satan is not just a liar, but he is also a murderer. So in the midst of Satan having a stronghold in a particular region, 
What do we as saints need to do? And that's our first point. Embrace Christ and his word till death. Let me show you why you need to embrace Christ. Uh, Would you turn to the book of Hebrews, please? Hebrews, and we'll begin in chapter 4, and then we're going to spring forward to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 4. And I love these a few verses, 14 through 16 of Hebrews 4. So 4.14 begins this way. Seeing then that we have, and I, I always like to stop and pause, because you had a lot of high priests from the time of the first high priest, Aaron, until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Josephus says there were 83 But now we have, see currently, this is a present tense verb. We have a high priest. He's the one seated at the right hand of God. So we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, and you might want to underline the next two words because that's our term, hold fast our confession. Since we have this great high priest who himself conquered death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, let us hold fast. Let us get a firm grip on our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'm sure Anipus was tempted to deny his Lord. And yet he held on to Christ and maintained a witness to the end. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's go over to chapter 6. Still in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, we'll see our term again. And we want to look here at chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Hebrews 6:17 thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or see the the inability to change <laughs> um, Christ's nature is steadfast he's the same yesterday today and forever so notice this, the immutability of his counsel, speaking here of God, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which, number one, it is impossible for God to lie. So the promises granted to you and me cannot be reneged upon by our Lord. If he offers us eternal life and we embrace that, we have currently the gift of eternal life. See, it's impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge. Now notice the words, to lay hold. That's our term again from Criteo. To lay hold of the hope set before us. Now our hope is not just, well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Our hope is built on historical truths. That Jesus came, He died for our sin. He conquered death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. See, Jesus is our blessed hope. 
We have one hope according to the book of Ephesians over in chapter 4. And since now we can lay hold of this hope, see that is sure. Verse 19 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. See, it keeps us steady regardless of what's going on around us. If we are enduring suffering or persecution, the hope is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Be encouraged. We have a tremendous hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, so we are to hold fast. Come back with me, please, uh, over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. So we've learned some things. In verse 13, I know you works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. Notice this, and did not deny my faith in the days in which Anipus, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So as a result of these things, what are we to do? Embrace Christ. And we embrace him because he is our hope. And that is our first point. Embrace Christ and his word till death. Now, to introduce my second point that I believe is derived right here from the text, uh, let me uh, share some wrong predictions uh, about the end time. Uh, for centuries, there have been innumerable theories as to when and how the world might end. Here are some highlights uh, gleaned from alleged prophecies. In 960, Bernard of Thuringia, a German theologian, calculated 992 as the most likely year for the world's end. As the time approached, panic was widespread. German astrologer Johann Stoffler predicted an overwhelming flood on February 20th, 1524. Believers started constructing arcs. One man is said to have been trampled to death by a mob attempting to board his specially built vessel. When nothing happened, the calculations were revised and a new date given, 1588. And that year also passed without any unusual rainfall. Then you have Solomon uh, Eccles. He was jailed in London's Bridewell Prison in 1665 for striding through Smithfield Market. This would have been a beautiful sight. Carrying a pan of blazing sulfur on his head and proclaiming doom and destruction. Although the end of the world did not follow... Uh, the Great Fire of London did in 1666. After studying both the Bible and mystical messages of the Great Pyramid, in 1874, Charles Taze Russell, perhaps you recognize that name, founder of the sect that became Jehovah's Witnesses, concluded that the second coming had already taken place. He declared that people had 40 years or until 1914 to enter his faith or be destroyed. Later, he modified the date to very soon after 1914. Herbert W. Armstrong, publisher of the magazine The Plain Truth, declared that January 7th, 
1972 was undoubtedly the date to watch. The utter failure of his prediction did not diminish his zeal. In the 16th century seer, Nostradamus is said to have favored 1999 as the year of the Martian invasion. Okay, get the antenna up. While an 18th century French prophetess, Jean La Roge, established the year 2000 as the definitive one. So here now is point number two, uh, coming on the heels of all these false prophecies. Reject false teaching because Jesus hates them. Reject false teachings because Jesus hates them. Down in verse 14, the one who is appraising the church says, but I have a few things against you. See, in life, the only thing that really matters is Jesus's assessment. Why does he have a few things against them? He goes on to say, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Hold now for the second time in this passage is used. Uh, and by the way, there is a contrast. Back in 2.13, he wrote to the church and he says, you hold fast to my name. Here you have some who are holding the teachings of Balaam. Uh, the doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that the women of Moab should seduce the Israelite men to commit immorality and ultimately to worship false gods. We call that idolatry. Uh, let's uh, turn back to the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 25 to understand this. Numbers chapter 25. As you turn to Numbers 25, the Israelites are in the process of the wilderness wanderings that lasted approximately 40 years. Uh, there would be over 600,000 men alone who would die during this period of time. Coming down now to 25.1, says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. Uh, that would be on the east side of the Jordan River. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now notice the first two words in verse 2. They invited. The verb here is feminine. It shows that it was the women of Moab who were now giving invites to the Israelite men to come and participate in their idolatrous system. So they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Further explanation of this is given in chapter 31, uh, verse 16. So flip forward. Chapter 31, <clears throat> down in verse 16. 31, 16. Moses is speaking. He says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, remember he was the prophet for hire, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. All right, so we, we're getting some connections here. What's going on in the church paralleling 
that which was taking place in the Old Testament. So with the idolatry came acts of immorality that seemingly permeated the church. Back with me, please. Revelation 2. And now to verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember we saw this group back in chapter 2 and verse 6. We really don't know fully who they were, but the Lord hated their practices, which reminds us of those classic words from Psalm 97.10. You who love the Lord hate evil. That's right. Those of us who are separated for the Lord, who truly love him, we are to hate all forms of wickedness. And then the key word, chapter 2, verse 16, repent. Jesus calls for an immediate change of mind and direction. Notice the words very carefully. Just take a look at this in verse 16. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And I I do want to point out to you uh, an interesting parallel with history. Do you know how Balaam died? Remember the prophet for hire? Numbers 31 in verse 8 says that he was killed by the sword. How does this passage begin? With our Lord Jesus Christ described as having a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. See, Christ is coming to judge the entire church see the words there or else i will come to you that's speaking of the entire church but in particular he is going to judge and enact judgment on them the individuals within the church that have bought into this false system of worship they are in particular pointed out here so you observe the you because see the judgment is against the entire church and by the way The church has the obligation to keep itself pure. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Even when there was a man who had committed incest, was in an incestuous relationship, and in the church of Corinth, Paul wanted the saints of Corinth to deal with that matter, to judge that man, but they would not. See, if you leave a little bit of leaven, It leavens the whole lump. In other words, it permeates the entire church. So as Jesus is evaluating the entire church, he notes those, that particular group, those that are given to leaven. And he says to the church that you need to clean this up because it's permeating the whole batch. And that is why he is now going to deal with the entire church. And this is what we have. This is what we have. All right, let's review briefly. And then I'll give us our third point. Point one, embrace Christ and his word. How long? Like Anipus, till death. Number two, reject false teachings because Jesus hates them. And in number three now, and and here is the reward dangling before the believer. Anticipate a future private intimacy 
with Jesus. That's down here in verse 17. Now for the familiar words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We know this is normative. In other words, what is given to one church applies to all the churches. And then Jesus speaks about the overcomer. 1 John 5, yes, get familiar with 4 and 5. Who's the overcomer? The individual that is born again. And what is promised to the born again overcomer? I will give some of the hidden manna. The word hidden here is intriguing. It's a perfect tense verb. It was hidden in the past with the results continuing. Our world loves that which is visible. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride life, what they can see, what they can get their hands on to fulfill their lust, they love it. And yet that's not God's realm. That's not what God favors. Although he has cared through visible means for his people in the past. Think about it being in Israel, back in the book of Exodus. And God showered manna from heaven and the Israelites were to go out and gather up enough food each day. And the day before the Sabbath, enough for two days. God provided for them. How awesome it must have been for them to enjoy this manna that came directly from God, to ponder the Lord's amazing provision for his own. We have what is called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread. In essence, you and I need to daily depend upon the Lord for our physical sustenance, but then also for our spiritual as well. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Jesus continues, and I will give him a white stone and on a stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. The reality is there are more opinions about what this means than there are commentaries. But I know it speaks about our future intimacy with Christ. Um, husband, wife, do you have a pet name for the other? And then married couples, maybe you have a pet name for a child. It speaks of intimacy, a name that you, only you have with that child a special name, particular name. What is said here is that there's going to be reward of this white stone and on a stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. It's just between you and the Lord. It's just a continuation of what we are enjoying now. You have your devotions, you read the word of God. And there's something going on in your life. And when you read a particular passage, it's, it's God speaking to you. And there's something he gives to you from that word that's between him and you alone to fit your circumstance, your need, your situation. Throughout all of eternity, we are going to enjoy that kind of intimacy with the Lord. It's amazing what is dangling before us a new name 
I came upon this. It's called A Boy Given New York's Longest Name. (laughs) Dalton Conley is a sociologist at New York University. He and his wife, Natalie Jaramonjanko, have two children. They recently sought permission with the city of New York to change their four-year-old son's name to, are you ready? Yo, Zing, Haino, Augustus, Eisner, Alexander, Wisner, Knuckles, Jeremenchenko, Conley. Okay, let me catch my breath. You got all that? Actually, a lot of that name was already his, but his parents added three more of the middle names. The boy suggested two of the names, including Knuckles, the name of the father's childhood dog. The boy's father, Dalton, explained that there are specific reasons for all those names, from honoring ancestors to upsetting expectations. At home, the boy is known as Yo. <laughs> you gotta love it. And his five-year-old sister is just E. They might have long names, but uh, we just keep it short at home. An official for the civil court clerk's office said they are used to other, they're used to unusual other names like, and here they are, A. Fluffy Bunny. And here's a great one, Human Bean. I'm sure human being the first name and bean being the last. Uh, But this was the longest name in their records on occasion biblically god gave a new name to someone he did that from abram to abraham saul becomes paul and we see the lord giving a new name and i want you to think about this he's going to give us a pet name that only he and i will know for all of eternity that's so extraordinary So why buy into the here and now for the temporal fulfillment of lust with idolatry that only leads to heartache and then the Lord judging us because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So what do we need to do? We need to be resolved. The first thing, point number one, embrace Christ and his word till death. I don't know. If the time will ever come when you have to hold so steadfast to your belief in God's word and who he is, that it might cost you your life. But remember, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Nothing to fear. Anipus, who was against all by his name, needed to be. And he stood fast. And there's going to come a day when Anipus will have that new name that only he and his Lord will know. And like Stephen of old, remember when he was martyred? Our Lord stood to receive him. Amazing. We live in a world given to false teaching. It's permeated this world. So what do we need to do? Second thing, reject false teachings because Jesus hates them. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2.15 that he that is spiritual judges or appraises all things. The standard is the word of God and if something doesn't meet the standard of the Bible, it is to be rejected. We need to evaluate the false teacher. How? 
by looking at the message. And when the message is contradictory to the Bible, then we know that there's a spirit behind it that's not from the Lord. And then number three, anticipate a future private intimacy with Jesus. How sweet it must have been for Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening to walk with the Lord. How great it was for Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. How awesome for Noah who is described as walking with the Lord. And today, child of God, Ephesians 4 says that we should walk with that same God with humility and lowliness of mind. But we still have that privilege to walk with the living God and continue to walk with them now. And when you do so, you will enjoy that future, special, private intimacy with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the encouragement we receive. That through the ages, yes, Lord, there have been those who have been slaughtered for the cause of Christ like Anipis. But there is a reward that transcends the suffering. There is a God who has given us hope now based on historical truth that Christ conquered death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and one day will reward us with eternal rewards. Thank you. Father, as well, we live in a, in a world where there is much false doctrine. I pray that we would be discerning and what your son hates we would also hate. The doctrine of Balaam, so to speak, is still around, and I pray that we would reject it. And those of us who love the Lord, we would hate evil. And then we would anticipate that future private intimacy with you. Nothing will be greater than that. So help us to live for that time and please you with our lives now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.